second week of uh, a sermon series that I'm pretty pumped up about. I shared it with you guys last week, and um, by, uh, by the uh, number of emails I got and the number of Facebook posts that some of you contributed, I think uh, we, we might be onto something here. We are doing a summer series looking through the book of Psalms. Now, if you're around the church for a long time, like when I thought about doing this, you know, I mean, look, I'm kind of... Well, I know you probably don't think I'm a normal guy, and the more you know me, you probably realize I'm not really all that normal. But, you know, if somebody said to me, come to church, we're going to study the Psalms, I mean, I get it. That's not riveting, right? You might go, well, you know. Um, So so, uh, what I'm trying to do, what we want to do is make this book come alive. This is the song book of our faith. Um, this is the songs that they sung in church when Jesus was a little boy. This is, there's all kinds of different psalms. There's psalms of ascent that they would sing on their way up into Jerusalem. I mean, every feeling, every raw emotion is contained within this book. And the goal would be that you'd see it in a new way, that you'd understand that it's not just ancient Israel's songbook, that it's yours, that the poetry, the emotions, the truth, uh, all the frustrations that are expressed in there, those are yours. Um, that you could engage with them on a daily basis, connect with God in new ways, in very real ways, in deep ways, in honest ways. All of that's available through the Psalms. And in order to make those things come alive, Fuller Seminary did, did a series last year, and we're sharing with, it, with you over these weeks, where they brought um, two unlikely characters together. Um, one is Eugene Peterson. Eugene Peterson is an 80-plus-year-old pastor, author, theologian who's written over 30 books, many of which would be called Christian classics, but his most widely known book is a book called The Message, which is a modern-day translation of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It really is his life's work. Bono, well, he's, he's not 80-something, and he's, he's not a theologian or a pastor, but he is a bit of a poet and maybe a little bit of a prophet. He's the lead singer of a band called U2. Many of you know that. Bono became very familiar with Peterson's work, specifically the message, but then began to read a lot of Peterson's books. And he would say that, that the Psalms, as he, as he understood Peterson to, in writing them, the Psalms really began to impact him and change his heart. And so Bono, and you'll see this in upcoming weeks, oftentimes before U2 goes out, they'll gather and they'll read Psalms, they'll, they'll pray the Psalms over that night. Last week I showed you how if you went to a U2 concert in the 90s, you were walking out actually singing a psalm. You might not have known it. Last week, we showed the introduction to this little series um, where, where Eugene Peterson uh, talked about not knowing who Bono was, and uh, Bono talked about how he was inspired by Eugene Peterson, and you saw them kind of talking about each other. Today, in this morning's installment, um, they actually get together and meet and begin a conversation about the Psalms. Check it out. We're at Eugene and Jan Peterson's home. Bono is coming here, flying here from Vancouver, in order to meet, be together, connect as friends, but also have a conversation about the Psalms in order to share this common love for the Psalm and bear witness to others of the beauty and power of the Psalms. Cookies are just about good.
Now look at this. It's so good to have you here. Great to see you. Oh, God bless you. Oh, God's blessed you, that's for sure. <laughs> look where you live. <laughs> this is quite a spot. You know, I just realized, never been to Montana. Haven't you really? So many gifts already, <laughs> just, just, just since being here. And welcome to the Flathead. That's what I always like to say to people when they come. What is your earliest memory of the Psalms? And what sort of impression did it have on you both? I was 12 years old when I discovered the Psalms. I picked up the Bible and I started reading. And somebody told me that the Psalms were important, so I started with the Psalms. And I was totally confused. Because um, I grew up in a culture where every word in the Bible was the Word of God, literally. Don't mess around with it. It's just that's the way it is. And I was starting to read uh, that he keeps my tears in this bottle, uh, shields, <laughs> uh, javelins, uh, rock. God is a rock. Come on. And um, after about two or three weeks of this, I just was just confused and I thought, I'm missing something. And uh, I'd never heard the word metaphor before, but I learned what a metaphor was, not by knowing the name, but by just observing what's going on in the Psalms. So I think the Psalms are important because they, for some people like me at 12 years old, they showed me that imagination was, um, was a way to get inside the truth. I remember the Psalms from the little Church of Ireland church um, um, so I'm, as a child going, I remember thinking great words, shame about the tunes, uh, except for The Lord is My Shepherd, which was a great tune. And I really like that. This is good. Words and melodies. Ah, they have this rawness, the brutal honesty of whether it's David or not, it doesn't matter. The psalmist is brutally honest about the explosive joy um, that he's feeling and the deep sorrow or confusion. And it's that that makes, that sets the psalms apart for me. And, and I often think, gosh, well, why isn't church music more like that? The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not one. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. Is that right? It's beautiful. It was right. Oh boy, this is magic. Wow, how, when did you get the place? When did you get this place? Oh, it's been in the family. My father bought, brought the, bought the property just towards the end of the Second World War, 1945, 46. So then we expanded, we doubled the size of this because right. we knew we'd, we'd have a lot of guests. We knew we'd have you. 
<laughs> foolishly made room for the Irish. It's good, right? So we'll keep watching that. Um, a little comp- clips of conversations and then Bonner reflecting on the Psalms. Um, I just love it. It helps, it helps bring the scripture to life for me. Uh, we started last week on Psalm 40. I'd encourage you to check that out online. Uh, it talks about wh- what it's like. As, as followers of God, I'm telling you, part of your journey will be waiting on the Lord. It is not a fun part of the journey, but it is an expected part of the journey. And we talked about how the scriptures never once, in that big giant book that we carry around, never once does God say, sing to me a really old and familiar song. He says over and over and over, sing to me with your life, not just with your words, a new song about your interactions with me. This week, I want to look at Psalm 23. Now, do you guys know, um, raise your hand if you're familiar with the term. I think probably most of you are. Type A personality, raise your hand if you uh, are, okay. Now, raise your hand if you think you are a type A personality. Okay, come on, you people are being shamed. I don't want to type A shame you, right? Um, because I am, I'm a pretty big type A person, um, which, I, you know, I, I kind of used to brag about that until I read the psychological definition. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I didn't feel as good about myself when I got done. Here, there's actually a condition called type A. I didn't realize that. I thought it was just kind of cultural. It's a condition. This is uh, how it's described. People who are outgoing, ambitious, rigidly organized, status conscious, well, I don't like that one, um, sensitive, although it's probably true, sensitive, impatient, anxious, and proactive. People with type A personalities are often high achieving hard workers who push themselves with deadlines, hate both delays and ambivalence, and they have a competitive drive and are driven by achievement. <laughs> See? Now, there's a lot of us out there. Uh, we tend not to marry each other. When you do have two that marry each other, boy, that's a real fun treat in your house. But uh, usually, you know, it's kind of one is a little bit more laid back and the other one is, you know, push, 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 push. But this is men of New Jersey and this is the New York metropolitan area. And I actually think we probably have more type A people here than you can find anywhere else in the world. Because it's not easy making it happen here, right? Like, you know, this is, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, right? The whole Sinatra thing. I mean, this is who we are. This is what we do here. We get it done. Now, there's a convergence of material all happened this week on this, right? I'm starting to study Psalm 23. And then, you know, I got a a bad cardiac test result recently. Um, So I had to have a, 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 a cardiac stress test this week. And of course, being type A, I took it as a competition, literally. Like, I swear this is the truth. I'm in the office and I'm going, well, how high, how high is the fastest anyone's ever gone on this machine? You know? And they're going, sorry, it's not a competition. I'm going, no, I'm just curious, like, how, like, how long could you go? And uh, so, you know, and they're, they're like, well, we got to get your heart rate up. See, I'm killing my sermon time, but you got to get your heart rate up to 150. And I said, okay, so you're going to run. I'm going to run, right? They go, no, no, you're going to walk. I looked at them. I said, you really think you're going to get my heart rate up to 150 walking? And, uh, you know, thinking I was too good for their machine. Uh, no, they were right. And I was wrong. Um, but anyway, so, you know, I'm trying to change my dad. I'm trying to do some things right. Okay. So that's another thing going on in my life. Then I came across this work by a guy named Meyer Friedman. He and his partner developed type A theory. This was their idea. It was their discovery that there are people like us out there. I didn't know it was a medical term. 
Here's how he discovered it. He was a cardiologist. So people that came to see him had heart issues. And a theory emerged as they began to notice the behavior of people that were coming to the doctor's heart practice. One day an upholsterer was in there, and the upholsterer, he was waiting to see the heart doctor, and he looked around at the chairs, and he noticed something strange about the chairs in the doctor's office. He, he called the doctor out and he said, look, this is something I never see. I, do, I, I repair chairs all the time. In your office, the front edges of the seats and the armrests are all worn out. Now, in our church, when I went and checked this out, the back of your seat seemed very worn out, very like there's a deep rest going on most of the time. But in the cardiologist's office, the front of the seat and the arms were all worn down. The doctors later observed that as they started to look at their clients and the way they sat, they noticed that they indeed did seem to sit on the edge of their seat. They leaped up frequently. Usually they were trying to figure out how much longer it was that they were going to get in. They were as tense as racehorses at the gates, and they all had heart problems. And after some initial observations, the doctors hypothesized that there was a connection, this is so fascinating, between cholesterol and type A-related stress. Here's what scientists are discovering. And I, I found this because I was actually, it's a true story. I was at the salad bar Thursday at ShopRite getting a salad. I, I can't eat my subs anymore. And someone from our church came in and she knows a lot about food. And she said, well, you should eat healthy, uh, but it's not really family history. It's not really diet. The biggest contributor to, to, to the cholesterol that is clogging your heart and killing you is stress. Stress coming from how we choose to live. Now, I think this is a diagnosis for most of you in this room. We live as people that literally go through life on the edge of our seats, right? And so I'm reading Psalm 23 this week, and I meet my friend at the Salabar, and I'm reading about stress and cholesterol, and I find out about type A theory, and I couldn't help but just stop for a minute and reflect on the words of David, the words that Bono just sang in our shared culture. Right, so here's some, some breaking news. This is not, as, as we say today, fake news. This is real news. This is not how you were created to live. This is not. Can't you almost feel like a little. This is not how you were created to live. And when we live this way, and most of us do, we pay a steep price for this. There is another way to live, and David expresses it in the 23rd Psalm. You know what's ironic? When do you hear the 23rd Psalm read? Funerals. But David's writing about a, a way to live, but somehow we've associated it with death, which we mess these things up all the time. But I, I want you to stay with me as we understand together what David is talking about. As best as I can tell, the word easy is only used in the Bible one time, and it's used by Jesus. And he used it in reference to your soul. Check this out, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. Remember, learn from me. I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. John Ortberg, in a brilliant book called Soul Keeping, notes this. Easy is a soul word. It's not a circumstance word. The soul was not made for an easy life, but it was made for an easy yoke. But our souls suffer from fatigue. Understand this. You are not just your body or your mind. There is a part of you called your soul, and your soul, just like your body and your mind, suffers from fatigue. 
there's a fatigue that attacks our body. You stay up late, you know, we, we get up too early, we try to fuel ourselves with coffee, a donut, Red Bull, right? But in the afternoon, you know, three o'clock, we're tired. That, that's body fatigue. There's a fatigue that attacks your mind when we're bombarded by information all day at work, when we carry around mental lists. I'm always pushing my phone to give me a reminder, give me a reminder of all the errands that we have to do, the bills we haven't paid, the emails we got to return. And so our mind grows weary. There's a fatigue that attacks your will sometimes. We have so many decisions we have to make. We're trying to decide what clothes will create the best impression, what tasks at work will get us the most success, what events we should attend, what ones we can blow off. We're constantly trying to make these decisions and choices. And so our wills grow weary. And here's what happened. When these categories of fatigue, each of them difficult in its own right, when they all conspire, what they do is they give you soul fatigue. And soul fatigue separates you from God, separates you from from yourself, separates from you from who you were created to be. It separates you from community, and it separates all of us from what we love most about life. Now, here's, here's... they result, excuse me, in what Orper describes as soul fatigue. Your soul, this is very practical, okay? This is, not, this is not out there stuff. I want you to understand something. You have a soul, and it gets tired. Remember Jesus said, learn from me? Why? Because Jesus engaged in his life in practices which allowed God's grace to continue to replenish his soul. What did Jesus do? He prayed often. He participated in community with his disciples. He engaged in corporate worship. He meditated on the scripture. He enjoyed God's creation. These were spiritual practices where he rested in God his soul. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you said, I know you've gone to bed early because your body was tired, right? I know you vegged out in front of the TV because your mind was tired. When's the last time you ever said, man, my soul is tired. I have to do something to replenish my soul. We don't. You see, your soul, that mystical, indescribable, spiritual, eternal part of, of you, that makes you you. That which of you, in you, is eternal. Your soul will live forever. In a Christian worldview, your soul will live forever either with God in a sinless kingdom or separated from God eternally. Here's what I want you to understand about that piece of you. Your soul, more than anything else, craves rest. Your will, sometimes it rejoices in striving for things. Your body, sometimes it rejoices in the the exhilaration of a challenge, right? Climbing the highest mountain, running faster than ever. Your mind, we like to stretch our mind with new things and new facts. But the soul, not so the soul. The soul is so cool if you could get this. The soul craves something else. The soul, unlike all those other parts, craves rest, The soul was made to rest in God the way a tree rests in soil. Pretty good quote. Not mine, but a pretty good quote. And so soul fatigue, and I'm a pastor and my soul gets tired, okay? Soul fatigue is maybe our ultimate problem. Because when you're in this condition, you find that you're not living up to the kind of life that you know that God wanted you and created you to live. You're not becoming the kind of person, you're not becoming the kind of person you want to be, that God had in mind when he first thought you up. More practically, right, when your soul is tired, you don't become the kind of spouse that you want to be or parent you want to be. I mean, we want to build into the lives of our kids, but we get so tired. 
I mean, I know I should serve the poor, but, you know, I mean, God, I'm so tired. I mean, I know I should say something about this to him or to her, but, but that would cause a big scene. I'm, just, I'm too tired. I know my wife is dying to hear some words of affirmation from me or some folks that work for me. They really need to build, be built up. But, man, you know, I, I got a lot of work to do. There's an old saying, it's not from the Bible, but I think it's pretty good. If Satan can't make you bad, he'll make you busy, and either way, you'll miss out on God. And in our world, we start to believe that being tired is normal. I actually got told that by a doctor once. I went to the doctor, and he said, why are you here? I said, I'm so tired. And he said, well, that's normal. But soul fatigue is not normal. See, you start to think it can't be escaped, that when somebody's born, this is just what we do. We just run, 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 run. We achieve, we achieve, we achieve. Constant sense of rush. Fatigue your whole life. You die, they say nice things, and into the dirt you go. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, if you would just come to me, he goes, my my yoke is easy. If you would learn the way I live, you would actually find rest for your aching soul. I mean, it can be life in you again. Now, Jesus wasn't the first one to say this. David, right? David, King David of Israel, wrote Psalm 23. And he wrote this whole thing as a description of what a soul that has been restored is like and how to live that way. Here's what he wrote. He said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Please understand, you can restore your soul. David says, look, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear an evil. Because you're with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. He goes on, you've prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup, it runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is soul restoration. And I think it might be what you're looking for. I know I am. Now, here's the thing. One of the challenges of soul fatigue is it doesn't have the same obvious physical uh, fatigue signs. If you run a marathon, right, your body lets you know when it's over. You swim a lot of laps, your body lets you know, I, 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 you know, you diet too much, your body starts to tell you, I'm hungry. But the soul, it doesn't come with a gauge. And frankly, because it's been disconnected from God since you were born into the world, you've actually gotten so used to living with soul fatigue, you're not even, you don't even know in our daily existence, we're not, we don't know what it's like to have our souls full. So we don't even know what we're missing. So in the times I have left, here's what I want to do. I want to share a few moments going over signs of soul fatigue with you. Here's the first one. This all comes out of Ortberg's work uh, on the soul. First one is this. If your soul is fatigued, one way you might know is that you have a frequent or constant sense of feeling rushed. This ongoing sense that there's enough, not enough time in the day. I got too many, I mean, I don't know if you're like me. I mean, I'm rubbing my head because this is my normal thing. I got, right, like this is what happens, right? The staff knows, though, because he's rubbing his head. Um, because I start rubbing my head, oh, I got so many things to do. I got so many th- responsibilities I have to meet. I-, I got so many obligations I have to carry out. I got too many things that I want to do. There just isn't enough time. 
Arthur Richard Swenson said this, quote, just take a look at our lives, he said. We send packages by Federal Express. We use a long-distance company called Sprint. We manage our personal finances on something called Quicken. We schedule our appointments on something called a day runner. We diet with Slim Fast, and we swim in trunks made by Speedo. <laughs> like, we will buy anything that will help us go faster. I mean, do you feel, do you feel this? It's so tiring. And sometimes, you know, when I start, this, I, I don't do this on purpose, literally, when I start to think about it, my hand goes up. <laughs> so sometimes I get so overwhelmed by all the things that I know I should do, I want to do. So I do two things that are very, one, is, one helps me and the other doesn't. The first thing I do is it happens to me in my car often, I start thinking of all the things I got to do and I go, whoa, whoa, just relax, just relax. Don't think about all of them. You can't do all of them. You're just going to do one at a time. Okay, and then do you know what I do? None of them, right? And so the next day I'm driving to work again going, oh my gosh, I can't believe I got all these things to do and I didn't do any of them yesterday. And so what happens is when you live this way, when you get this overwhelming sense of all of the things you've got to do, it tends to paralyze you. And you just keep living in it, breathing it in over and over again. And so if your soul is fatigued, you're going to feel like there's just not enough time to get done all the things I need to get done, and it's going to mount on you, and your soul is going to get tired. Number two, a second sign of soul fatigue, difficulty making decisions. Do you remember when you were young, and it'd be like, I can have any of these candies? Any of them? And it was like an enjoyment, a thrill about picking up one of these and one of those. I don't know what happened, but I am so tired of making decisions. Are you tired of making decisions? Like... You know, you go to the Chester Diner, like, I wish they would just give me, like, a, you know, a sh- like, we have hamburgers and eggs, which would you like? But now they hand you, like, you know, a, a novel, right? And you, I just, I mean, half the time I'm, like, looking at Joan, I don't know, just order me something, you know, I pick, pick something. We, 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 we get tired, but here's the problem. When you get sick of making decisions... There's a price to be paid for that because there is no new day coming. There is no change. You're never going to break up with them because you're not going to make the decision to do it. You're never going to change jobs because you're not going to make the decision to do it. It's too overwhelming to you. Your soul's tired, so you're not going to get it. You're just going to, you know, I'll get up on Monday. You're not going to start a new diet. You're not going to change an exercise program. You're not going to make any resolutions. There will never be a difficult conversation that needs to be had. There will never be a trip to a counselor's office that you desperately need because you're too tired. So I'm just going to get up on Monday. Here's another sign of soul fatigue. Things seem to bother you more than they should. You know it's not a big deal? What he said, what she did, what he wrote, but for some reason, you can't let it go. They meant nothing by it. It's not a big deal. Joe and I promise I'll pick it up tomorrow. It was just a couple of crumbs. It was just, it was just a, a lost paper. It was just my underwear on the bathroom floor for the thousandth time. But when your soul gets tired, when your soul gets tired, right, like, the fuse is so much shorter. Fourth, it's huge, okay, huge. This is going to register with some of you. This is, this is going to set a, a red light off. Fourth, when your soul gets tired, because some of you were, you, you, these were not issues in your 20s. When your soul gets tired, you will have impulses to eat or drink or spend or crave that are harder to resist than they used to be or otherwise would be. 
A sure sign of soul fatigue is addiction. Listen to me. If we can't get our souls to rest, then we will medicate them to sleep. If we can't find them the rest in the Lord that your soul is looking to, oftentimes we will medicate them until they're quiet. I really believe in some ways this is at the heart of the addiction crisis we have in the United States. Fifth, when your soul is tired, you are so much more likely to favor short-term gains in ways that will leave you with long-term costs. In order just to feel peace for just a little bit or a rush of adrenaline into a tired life, you'll do something for the short-term thrill or relief and you'll forget about the long-term ramifications. I know it's not going to lead me to where I want to be, but right now it's what I need. It's just one night, it's just one drink, it's just one hit, it's just one look. I know, I know, but I, I kicked the can down the road a little bit, but I just need to feel better right now. Because my soul is looking for something. I, I need something. Three quick ones left. Number six. When your soul is tired, you're going to have a sense of stagnation or superficiality in your relationship with God. Do you remember when you first found out who Jesus was and how much he loved you, how excited you were? You remember how you used to love going to church? Remember how you used to love and engage the worship time? Remember there was a time when you couldn't wait to get into a small group of believers and just share your story or hear the word of God or go to a prayer time? But now it's, I mean, it's different. I mean, so maybe you still have it. It's kind of off and on, though. It depends on my schedule. Sometimes when I show up, though, even if I make it, you know, my heart's not really there. I'm not, I'm not engaged in it. Maybe your prayers, just be honest, are your prayers mostly just kind of hurried prayers on the run? If you're honest, would you say, look, I, the hope of a relationship with God, I believe in it, but I just don't know it. It seems kind of distant. My mind, if I'm truthful about it, it's not being deeply formed. It's not being shaped, immersed, saturated in the things of God. I'm not experiencing the kind of character growth that I know I want to. Because when your soul gets tired because it's not resting in the bedrock of Christ, your spiritual life just becomes kind of superficial. Number seven, when your soul gets tired, you have a lot less courage than you should there's not going to be any taking of the mountain. There'll be no striving for change, no new tomorrows. Why? Because I'm too afraid. What if I lose? What if it costs me? What if I'm wrong? Because soul fatigue, guys, is a breeding ground for fear, and fear by its very nature separates you from God. And finally, this. This is the ultimate cost, I think. Soul fatigue ultimately leads to a decreased ability to love. It's a great command. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. When your soul gets tired, that gets really hard. I mean, people that work in philanthropy talk about donor fatigue. People in volunteer work talk about compassion fatigue. What happens when your soul gets tired? Parents, you understand the kind of energy that it takes to parent well and how often we face those moments when I think that I know right now my child needs, I have these thoughts, right now my child needs attention and needs conversation, needs my presence, needs my devoted attention. Right now my child needs me to speak into something difficult. Right now my child needs me, needs me to, to focus and have that talk. I can't do it. 
It's too hard. I don't have anything to give. Marriage, right? Why do our marriages so often start to deteriorate? Because our marriages, our relationships, they need investing. And love is this daily choice of dying to self. But if you're honest, I'm too tired to die for anybody. And what becomes characteristic of people with soul fatigue, and I think this is true, we laugh about it on Facebook. We post memes about it all the time. But what becomes characteristic of people with soul fatigue is not love for enemies, It is not love for the least of these amongst us. What tends to happen when we have soul fatigue, when it just comes to other people, is at best we're indifferent, and at worst sometimes we can just treat people without right disdain because I'm too tired. That's soul fatigue, and it is deadly serious business because it creates people who are constantly rushed, always behind, indecisive, self-medicating, fearful, superficial, unconnected with God, and too fatigued to love. And that is not what Jesus was talking about when he said, my yoke is easy. David and Jesus knew a way of life that was so different than the one that you and I are living. Jesus spoke of a rest for your tired soul that was available not in eternity, but now. David said, your, 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 your soul could be restored to life. And that's what the point of Psalm 23 is. It's not a funeral dirge. It's a life lesson. And the first four things he says, David writes, he shows the choices that Jesus made. David understood that we forget that you have to make on a daily basis in order to restore your soul. Look at them real quickly with me. Here's number one, biggest one. If you get nothing else, this is the one you need to get. Number one, David said, the Lord is my shepherd. See, you've heard it so many times. It doesn't resonate in your soul. But I need you to understand this is a number one life choice you need to make, not once, but daily. It's a basic decision. Here's the question. Are you on your own in this life, or do you have a shepherd? Is my life in my hands? Do I got to make it happen? Do I have to protect myself provide for myself? Is it all on me? Is my life in my hands alone? Is it all on me? Or is there a shepherd? Is there one who is actually watching over me, protecting me, feeding me, caring for me, taking care of my days? Am I on my own? This is an eternal question. Am I just on my own? Am I just on my own? Or is there someone in that has me? Now, some of you this morning, you may have never made the eternal decision, come to a place where you've asked Jesus to be the shepherd of your life, to stop trying to do it on your own. Maybe you think you can shepherd yourself right into the graces of God. You can work enough, give enough, uh, be good enough. Maybe you've lived as if you have no shepherd and you have this constant anxiety of knowing, I'm on my own, I'm going to face ultimate issues, problems, including death on my own. I have no shepherd. This morning, as I prayed over earlier, I'd encourage you to make an eternal decision of choosing Jesus as your, your shepherd, repenting of the old ways, turning towards Christ and new life, and following. Now, I know a lot of us have done that. We, we've baptized hundreds and hundreds of people over the last few years. Catch this. That is not just a one-time decision to allow and understand that you have a shepherd because the world will not change and the hurry will not stop. Daily, you need to come to a place of rest. Daily, you need to center yourself around this concept. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm not alone. Because a life without a shepherd is a life of unceasing worry about, I mean, you name it. Future, children, job, health. What I'm, if I'm going to get what I want? 
This is the root of our anxiety issues. It chokes out life. It kills us. Because without a shepherd, you know what we do? See, you were actually created as a follower. I mean, we all want to be leaders. I'm a leader. But the truth is, at some level deep inside of us, the scripture teaches, as sheep, we all become followers. If you don't entrust your life to a shepherd, do you know who you will wind up following? Other sheep. This is what sheep do. This is the reason the scripture describes us this way. Sheep, I, I, I read a study on sheep this week. I, this is a complete truth. You can Google this at home. Sheep follow other sheep. If one sheep moves, guess what all the other sheep do? They go. They follow the other sheep. True story. Had a bit of a crisis going on with some, some folks last night. I was up late, lying in bed, waiting for some texts and stuff. And so, I, you know, I'm weird. And so I see this headline and I emailed it to myself so I wouldn't forget to show it to you this morning. Check this one out. True story. Just from last night, hundreds of sheep killed after bear chases them over the cliff. And so it just says, right, like uh, their bodies were found last Sunday. The rest of the large flock was missing after dispersing over the mountains. It goes on to say, like, they started to run and the one sheep went over the cliff. Now, you would think it'd be enough for the rest of them to go, whoa, you know, bad plan. But no. Hundreds of them follow the sheep over the cliff. This is what sheep do. At least sheep that don't have a shepherd. You have an alternative choice, a, a way to do life in the constant care and protection of, of somebody who said, I'm the good shepherd. See, the good shepherd, understand the good shepherd, he's always thinking about his sheep. That's what shepherds do. He's always thinking, what do they need? He's guiding them. He's caring for them. He's protecting them. He's watching out for them. He's looking out for their needs. You're not alone. You have a shepherd. I mean, if you would just, if you would just reach out and ask. He's looking to guide you and protect you. He'll do that for you. He really will shepherd you. You're not on your own. It is not all up to you. Here's what I want you to do. If you say it loud, I won't make you say it again, okay? I want you to know you have a shepherd, but you have to believe it. You have to center yourself on this every day. I'm not on my own. I'm not on my own. I'm being taken care of. I'm being looked at. Somebody's watching me. Somebody's walking with me. Somebody's taking care of me. Nothing will happen to me today. I can live a life free of fear and anxiety and worry. You know why? Because I have a shepherd. So that's what I want you to say with me on three. I have a shepherd. Ready? Say it like you mean it. Say it like it's a newfound discovery or I'll make you say it all day. I'll make you people write it on the blackboard a hundred times. One, two, three. I have a shepherd. See, you have a shepherd. You're not on your own. You have somebody that's watching you, guiding you, protecting you. There's another way to life. David and Jesus, they made this second choice. These are choices. The first is to believe you have a shepherd. The second is this. David says, because I have a shepherd, I shall not want. And the idea is that because I have a good shepherd and he cares and he provides for me, I can go through life as joyful and grateful and content. You know why? Because if I know my shepherd, he, he, I know he's giving me what I need. I know he's providing for me what I have to have. If he wants me to have it, I'll have it. If he doesn't want me, it's not what's best for me. I trust the shepherd. Because when you don't, right, when you don't and you start following other sheep and watching what the other sheep do, what the other sheep have, what do you get? Chronic discontentment, insatiable desire, never-ending quests for satisfaction. This is the world. 
There are right now, do you know what some of the smartest people in the world are trying to do right now? They're trying to do two things. They're trying to convince you of two things. Number one, that you are not content. You should want. And number two, they're trying to convince you that your contentment is just one purchase away. Just one purchase away, then you'll have it. There's another way to do life. There is a good shepherd who knows what you need and what you don't, who knows what would be good for you, who knows better than you do what would be bad for you. All you have to do is put your life in his hands. I know it's not easy, but if you would choose to trust and to rest in what he has given you and not long for what the other sheep have, you would find peace for your soul. Another soul choice. David says, here's what he does. He makes me lie down in green pastures. This is what he does. He comes and he, 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 he makes me lie down. You know what he makes you do? He makes you stop. Because constant busyness, this overcommitted lifestyle, is what's killing you. Just stop. There's a guy named Philip Keller. He wrote a book about Psalm 23 where he actually studied sheep and shepherds in order to get an understanding for what David was talking about. Because David was a shepherd. And so here's what he learned about sheep. Sheep don't lie down easily. They won't even lie down to rest when they need it. He wrote, there are several conditions under which a sheep will never lie down. Because they're timid. As long as they're afraid, they won't lie down. They won't risk resting. Then he said, because they're social creatures and there's sometimes tension in the flock, when two sheep are butting heads about who's going to be higher on the pecking order, they're not going to lie down and rest when there's relational dissension. And then he said, because they're creatures of appetite, if they're empty inside, if they're hungry, they're not going to lie down. They won't lie down until they're free of fear, free of friction, and free, uh, free from friction, and free from hunger. Anybody know anybody like that? Because it's a lot like us. Some of you are afraid of what happened, or, or what might happen, or what will happen. And so how, you can't rest. I'm just so scared, I mean, because you think you're on your own. Some of you are in this relational conflict right now with people you love and the tension and the friction. You're so tired of it and you can't sleep at night. Keller would go on to say, he goes, look, here's what, what gives the sheep assurance. This is so good. What gives the sheep assurance to rest is the presence of the shepherd. Because when there's a really good shepherd, the sheep realize they have nothing to fear because somebody's protecting them. And sheep grow quite confident in the presence of a good shepherd. David in Psalm 23 goes, you see, I got a shepherd like that. Allows me to just lie down. You know, you have a shepherd like that. David goes, I'm really confident in him. Uh, like he says, I can walk through valleys of death, but I'm not really afraid because he's right there with me. David says, you know, he actually prepares a table for me. He blesses for me. He gives me food, and he actually does it right in front of my enemies. I can, I can stop and not worry about what they're doing, what they're saying, what they're thinking, how they're conspiring. And I can just enjoy the richest affairs with my God because he's protecting me. Keller writes about how sheep will get in fights over the pecking order. But when the shepherd is present, he manages that. In the presence of the shepherd, I can take my relational conflicts to him and he brings peace. When I come to the good shepherd, I say, God, I'm empty. God, I'm feeling lonely. God, I'm, I'm hungry. The scripture says that God will come and he will fill your heart. What this means is wherever you are, you are in the presence of the good shepherd. Even in difficult places, even in scary places, you when, you, when you will realign under the shepherd, when you start to go, wait, 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 I'm not on my own, you can find rest. 
And the final choice for soul care is this, and, and David made it, Jesus practiced it. David says, the good shepherd leads me beside still waters. Interesting thing about sheep, sheep don't like and they get nervous around noisy, fast-running water because if they get pushed or they fall and their wool gets saturated and it gets real heavy and they can't get out and the current drowns them. Sheep need water that's still and quiet. Sheep need water that is still and quiet. And so do you. And so do I. But man, I love noise. I, I love it. We live in a world where, I mean, you know, it's funny. They, and what's it, what are they calling? Oh, Reed. Is he out there? Yeah, Reed, Reed has a name for me. He calls me Mr. Buzz. Um, because I love excitement. I hate quiet. I love, you know what I do when I go home? Um, my wife was traveling this week, and so I was home by myself for two nights. I walk in the house. You know what I do as soon as I go in the house? I turn the TV on. So it's interesting. They did a sociological experiment. We're watching more TV than ever. What is the number one reason people turn the TV on in their house? Anyone know? Noise. I want noise. Because you know what happens when it's quiet? My soul starts to speak. My soul starts to, to rise up and I start to hear it. And since I'm not, really, I'm not really taking the time for stillness or quiet or to get where to feed it with the things of God, you know what I'd rather do? Drink it into submission maybe or flip on a TV show because I've got to quiet that thing down. I'm so used to noise and stimulation. There's an easier way to... Jesus and David both knew something about care for your souls. Are you tired? They would say you need to create some space. You need to give some time for quiet in order to hear the voice of the shepherd. Listen to me now. This is it and I'm done. You have to create some silence, some solitude, some space, some room in your life. This is so hard for your pastor. I want you to know that because I'm so busy. Because I equate being busy with being important. And if I'm lying around and i got plenty of time on my hands, I must not be important, so then I must be a loser. Right? But, but this, is, this is the work of the enemy. We have to create space for it. Because if you will, your soul is crying out for this. Your soul just wants to be at rest in God. If you will allow it to be, he will restore it. He'll bring new life to your soul, but you have to create the space. If you don't, if you don't, over time, there will be plenty of noise and plenty of activity. There may even be lots of achievements, but your soul will die, or at least wither. And Jesus knew it. That's why I give the warning to my kids. As now they're getting ready to go off into the world and, and make their way, I say to them, listen, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Ben, come on up. God wants to shepherd you so bad that he sent his son to live on this earth to teach us about another way of life possible. God was so serious about shepherding your soul that when he thought about how to describe, it, how to describe himself, that when Jesus walked the face of the earth, he could have chosen any metaphor, but he said, I want you to know this. I am the good shepherd. I'm the one you've been looking for. Clearly, he would have known David's metaphor. Here's how you know the good shepherd. When a threat, a bear, or a lion comes to the flock, 
I mean, a hired, just a hired gun, he runs away. But the good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. And Jesus Christ loved you so much that he laid down his life just for you. You have a shepherd. Can I get you to say it one more time with me? I have a shepherd. So will you let him do it? Will you let him shepherd you? Will you just this week ask him to shepherd instead of worrying? This week, choose to rest in the fact that you have everything that he wants you to have. You don't need to want. This week, rest instead of running and frantic activity. Choose to lay down off. Will you just stop for a minute? This week, if you would create a little space, turn off Turn off all of the noise. Get five minutes alone. This is why we're doing the Psalms. Read the Psalms. Nobody's there. You could sing these. Sing the Psalms. Your wife will think you're weird. It'll be awesome. And God will become more real to you than he ever has before. And men and mills, men and mills, it's possible and it's true. Your soul that is so tired will be restored.